from New York, this is Democracy Now! Because of the escalating tensions and the fragility of the situation in the region, we are calling to, for maximum restraint from all parties. We don't want any, any, rash, any rash actions that could trigger further violence. The United Nations is urging all parties in the Middle East to show restraint after a suspected Israeli drone strike killed a top Hamas official inside Lebanon, raising the risk of a regional war. We'll speak to the Dutch-Palestinian analyst Moeen Rabani. But first, the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, has resigned six months after becoming the first black woman to leave the university. She'd been the target of an intensive right-wing attack following a contentious congressional hearing on anti-Semitism when she was questioned by Republican Congress member Elise Stefanik. Well, let me ask you this. Will admissions offers be rescinded or any disciplinary action be taken against students or applicants who say from the river to the sea or intifada advocating for the murder of Jews? As I've said, that type of hateful, reckless, offensive speech is personally abhorrent to me. We'll speak to Harvard professor Khalil Gibran Mohammed. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Fears of a regional war in the Middle East are growing after a top Hamas official was assassinated in a suburb of Beirut, Lebanon, on Tuesday. Hamas's deputy leader, Salah al-Aruri, was killed in a suspected Israeli drone strike that also killed six other members of Hamas. Al-Aruri was the chief of Hamas's operations in the occupied West Bank. He was also credited with strengthening ties between Hamas and the Lebanese group Hezbollah. In the West Bank, Palestinians are holding a general strike today to protest his assassination. Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah is scheduled to give a speech today responding to the killing. While Israel has not claimed responsibility for the assassination, one prominent Israeli lawmaker congratulated the Mossad and Shin Bet on social media. An Israeli army spokesperson said the military was in a, quote, very high state of readiness in all arenas and defense and offense. Lebanon's prime minister, Najib Makate, condemned the drone strike, warning the attack, quote, aims to draw Lebanon into a new phase of confrontations, unquote. U.N. officials in Lebanon are urging all sides to show restraint to avoid a wider conflict. As we went to air, Iranian state media reported at least 50 people have been killed and scores injured after at least two blasts went off at an event marking four years since the death of General Qasem Soleimani, who was killed in a U.S. drone strike in Iraq. Soleimani was the head of the Revolutionary Guard's elite Quds force. In Gaza, the death toll from Israel's nearly three-month-long bombardment has topped 22,300. An Israeli strike on the Palestinian Red Crescent's headquarters in Khan Yunis has killed at least five people, including a five-day-old baby. Jem McConnell, who works with the U.N. Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Gaza, spoke from the El Amal Hospital after the attack. This is a space where children were living. You can see on the floor the blood. 
the world should be absolutely horrified. The world should be absolutely outraged. A child was killed here today. Four more people were killed here today in a space that should be safe. But there is no safe space in Gaza and the world should be ashamed. In Rafa, a Palestinian man has set up a tent on the rubble of his former home, which was blown up in an Israeli strike that killed his wife, six children and two grandchildren. Ahmad Abu Slema said he survived because he'd gone out to find food. This place used to be the house of my family, my house. And I'm the only survivor in my family. What separated us was that I wanted to get bread from the bakery. I wish I died with them. I wish there was no four or five minutes when I was away. That would be better than me living like this. Loneliness is tough and parting is hard. But I'm asking God at the beginning of the new year, 2024, to give peace to the people and to give peace to the Palestinian people and for this pain to end. In other news from Gaza, the U.N. says half the population is now at risk of starvation. Arif Hussein, the chief economist at the World Food Program, told The New York Times, quote, I've been to pretty much any conflict, whether Yemen, whether it was South Sudan, Northeast Nigeria, Ethiopia, you name it. I've never seen anything like this, both in terms of its scale, its magnitude, but also at the pace that this has unfolded, he said. In Israel, 42 survivors of the October 7th attack by Hamas are suing the IDF, the Shin Bet Security Service, and Israeli police over the massacre. The plaintiffs, who were attending the Nova Music Festival in southern Israel on October 7th, accuse Israeli security forces of approving the event amid safety concerns and failing to shut down and disperse the crowd after receiving information about a security breach just hours before the killing spree. This comes as an investigation from The New York Times finds Israeli forces were poorly organized in the response and had no plans to stop such an attack, which went ahead unimpeded for hours. Harvard President Claudine Gay has resigned amidst a mounting firestorm fueled by right-wing politicians and media over free speech and support for Palestinian rights on campus. Claudine Gay, Harvard's first black president, announced she was stepping down Tuesday, just six months into her tenure, weeks after University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill's resignation. Both women resigned in the wake of last month's congressional hearing on anti-Semitism, where they were grilled by lawmakers, including the far-right New York Congress member Elise Stefanik, who gloated too down on social media following yesterday's news. Sorry, Sally Kornbluth, president of MIT, is the third president Stefanik is hoping to take down. Following the hearing, conservative activists proceeded to smear Gay's academic history, accusing her of plagiarism after uncovering instances of inadequate citations of her work. In her resignation letter, Claudine Gay wrote, quote, It's been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus, she said. We'll have more on this story with Khalil Gibran Mohammed, a professor at Harvard Kennedy School, after headlines. 
In Sudan, the head of the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, Mohamed Hamdan Dagolo, said his forces are open to an immediate unconditional ceasefire. Dagolo, known as Hameti, made the declaration Tuesday as he signed an agreement with the newly formed Civilian Bloc, the Coordination of Civil Democratic Forces, or Takadum, which is led by former Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok. From here, we apologize to all our people in Sudan, in all its states, east, west, north, south, and center, for all the violations that took place. We are now extending our hands for peace. If they want peace, welcome. Nothing will make us leave Khartoum except peace. This comes as Hameti has been touring neighboring countries, meeting with the heads of Uganda, Ethiopia and Djibouti in what appears to be an attempt to gain legitimacy as Sudan's leader ahead of any cessation of violence. Since the war between the RSF and the Sudanese army broke out last April, over seven million people have been displaced within Sudan, making it the largest internal displacement crisis in the world. Another 1.3 million have fled Sudan. Some 30 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance, reports of mass killings and ethnic cleansing have been mounting in Darfur. Activists say the Sudanese people and its pro-democracy resistance committees are the ones who should decide Sudan's fate and warn the RSF is attempting to whitewash its crimes. The Somali government is denouncing an agreement between Ethiopia and the breakaway Republic of Somaliland that would give landlocked Ethiopia access to the Red Sea port of Berbera. The Somali government has denounced the deal as an act of aggression and recalled its ambassador to Ethiopia. Ethiopia's step is an offensive that endangers the stability and peace of the region, which was already wobbling with problems. It is a violation and an open invasion of Somalia's sovereignty, freedom and unity of the Federal Republic of Somalia. The so-called Memorandum of Understanding and Agreement of Cooperation is null and void. The breakaway Republic of Somaliland has not been internationally recognized since seceding from Somalia more than 30 years ago. Access to the Red Sea port is allegedly being exchanged for Ethiopia's future recognition of Somaliland's independence, though this has not been confirmed by Ethiopia. Many major multinational companies must for the first time ever pay a global minimum tax of at least 15 percent on corporate profits. The landmark tax reforms went into effect Monday, nearly three years after 140 countries agreed to a new system which is expected to increase tax revenue by $220 billion per year. The U.S. is not currently participating in the reform despite backing the 2021 agreement. Countries that have implemented the 15 percent tax since January 1st include include the EU, the UK, Australia, South Korea, Japan and Canada, as well as nations known as tax havens like Ireland, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Switzerland and Barbados. The Center for International Corporate Tax Accountability and Research said the new global minimum tax would, quote, reduce incentives from companies to use tax havens and incentives for countries to be tax havens, putting a serious break on what was a race to the bottom, unquote. 
Embattled New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez is facing renewed calls to resign after prosecutors issued a new superseding indictment accusing the Democrat of accepting bribes and abusing his power to benefit the government of Qatar between 2021 and 2023. Federal prosecutors say Menendez publicly praised Qatar in order to aid his associate, businessman Fred Davies, secure an investment from a fund linked to the Qatari government. In exchange, Menendez allegedly received luxury gifts, including gold bars, tickets to a Formula One race, and offers of an expensive wristwatch. Menendez was already facing charges of aiding the Egyptian government. The senator and his four co-defendants, including his wife and Fred Davies, have pleaded not guilty and are scheduled to stand trial in New York City in May. Civil rights leader Bishop William Barber is calling for more awareness and justice for disabled people following his ouster from a Greenville, North Carolina movie theater last week. Barber said staff at the AMC theater confronted him over his use of a specialized chair he carries with him and needs to use due to an arthritic condition he's had for decades. The bishop was attending a screening of The Color Purple with his 90-year-old mother. Bishop Barber says his removal was a violation of the 1990 Americans with Disabilities Act as he addressed the incident at a news conference this week. The ADA Act owes its birthright not to any one person. People worked for years. They sent alerts. They draft legislation. They testified. They negotiated. They filed lawsuits. They stood up in places. They sat down in places. They wouldn't move from places. They fought, they stood, they engaged in nonviolence to say, you will not push us to the corner. Yes, yes. You will not block us from coming just because we're differently able. Come on. They built a movement. They built a movement. Bishop Barber met with the head of AMC yesterday and said he plans another meeting with him. Donald Trump appealed a decision by Maine's secretary of state to remove him from the Republican primary ballot for his role in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Trump is also expected to appeal Colorado's Supreme Court decision to remove him from its state primary ballot, which also cited the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment. The case will likely end up before the Supreme Court, where three of the nine justices were chosen by President Trump. And trailblazing U.S. Congress member Eddie Bernice Johnson has died at the age of 88. In 1972, she was elected to the Texas House of Representatives by a landslide, becoming the first black woman from Dallas to win elected office. She also served in the Texas Senate before winning a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives in 1992, where she served for three decades before retiring in 2022. Eddie Bernice Johnson was a pioneer in many fields, including the first registered nurse elected to Congress, the first African-American to represent Dallas in Congress, and the first woman and first African-American to chair the House Committee on Science, Space and Technology. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay has resigned six months after becoming the first black woman to lead the university. Stay with us.
Sometimes I Cry by Les McCann, the soul jazz pioneer, passed away last week at the age of 88. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The first African-American and second woman to lead Harvard University resigned Tuesday after allegations of plagiarism and backlash over her testimony and a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism last month. That's part of a broader effort to restrict pro-Palestinian speech on college campuses. Claudine Gay's six-month tenure is the shortest of any Harvard president in history. Claudine Gay will remain at Harvard as a tenured professor of government and African and African-American studies. In a letter Tuesday, she wrote, quote, It's been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor, two bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am, and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus, she wrote. The plagiarism allegations against President Gay were part of a campaign started last month, led in part by conservative activist Christopher Rufo, who cheered her resignation on X, writing in all capital letters, SCALPED. The conservative website, the Washington Free Beacon, published new plagiarism allegations against Gay Tuesday. One of the authors Rufo accused Gay of plagiarizing was her thesis advisor, Gary King, who's dismissed the allegations, telling the Daily Beast, quote, there's not a conceivable case that this is plagiarism. Her dissertation and every draft I read of it met the highest academic standards, he said. The Harvard Corporation issued a statement Tuesday saying Gay, quote, acknowledged missteps and showed, quote, remarkable resilience in the face of deeply personal and sustained attacks, unquote. Claudine Gay's resignation comes after the University of Pennsylvania president, Elizabeth McGill, also resigned just days after the two appeared, along with MIT President Sally Kornbluth, at a congressional hearing led by right-wing Republican Congress member Elise Stefanik. This is Stefanik questioning President Gay. It's a yes or no question. Let me ask you this. You are president of Harvard, so I assume you're familiar with the term intifada, correct? I've heard that term, yes. And you understand that the use of the term intifada in the context of the Israeli-Arab conflict is indeed a call for violent armed resistance against the state of Israel, including violence against civilians and the genocide of Jews. Are you aware of that? That type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. Well, let me ask you this. Will admissions offers be rescinded or any disciplinary action be taken against students or applicants who say, from the river to the sea or intifada, advocating for the murder of Jews? As I've said, that type of hateful, reckless, offensive speech is personally abhorrent to me. That was last month. On Tuesday, Congressmember Stefanik celebrated Gay's resignation on social media, writing in all caps, TWO DOWN. Stefanik added, this is, quote, just the beginning of what will be the greatest scandal of any college or university in history, and vowed to hold more hearings. 
Congressmember Stefanik is a major Trump ally and a Harvard alumna who was removed from a Harvard advisory board in 2021 over her comments about voter fraud in the 2020 election that had, quote, no basis in evidence. Meanwhile, the conservative activist Christopher Rufo announced Tuesday evening he was, quote, contributing an initial $10,000 to a plagiarism hunting fund. For more on all of this, we're joined by Khalil Gibran Mohammed, professor of history, race and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School. He's the author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime and the Making of Modern Urban America. Professor, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. First, if you can respond to and were you surprised by the resignation of Claudine Gay yesterday? Uh, thanks, Amy, for having me on. Um, I, I have to admit, I wasn't surprised, but I was extremely disappointed. Uh, this is a terrible moment for higher education. Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania are just the beginning. The political attacks that you've just profiled uh, by Elise Stefanik and most other members of the House committee that held those hearings on December 5th have actually declared war on the independence, on academic freedom, on the truth of American history and our present at all colleges and universities, just as Governor DeSantis has done in Florida and Greg Abbott has done in Texas and other governors and legislative bodies in many other states. This is the next step in now a three year long campaign to destroy this country's capacity to address its past and its present to deal with the structural racism, the systemic inequalities that uh, cause premature death amongst uh, millions of Americans every year. Uh, and right now, the Republicans and their allies are winning. So if you can put Claudine Gay's um, Gay in context, the first black president, the first black woman president, the second woman to lead Harvard University. Now, uh, her presidency is the shortest in Harvard's history. And put in the context of the whole attack on um, DEI, the whole attack on critical race theory, and if you can talk about— um, this campaign by Stefanik, by Rufo, as they go from the congressional hearing, which didn't succeed in taking her down, uh, to this issue of plagiarism. Okay, well, let me start with the fact that Harvard's the oldest, wealthiest, most prestigious university in this country uh, and, and globally. So for almost 400 years, uh, Harvard has uh, systematically excluded white women and people of color, uh, by and large, from its hallowed uh, corridors, uh, from entering its gates. That's just an absolute fact, a fact that the university under the previous president, Larry Bacow, uh, admitted to in a report called the Harvey, Harvard Legacy of Slavery Report that was issued uh, just over a year ago, a report that points out precisely how not only did the university exclude people of color from uh, getting an education, but in fact, collected the bodies of indigenous people and enslaved people for scientific research and led into the 20th century calls for scientific racism that helped to construct the racial hierarchies that we still live with in this country today. That's Harvard's own history as a leader. So the very university that finally arrived at a moment where it not only reckoned with its own history, but also recognized the talent 
uh, is universal and that the best of us actually have the ability to move this country and world forward in a time when the planet is literally on fire and most people who will suffer most from that will be people of color. That's, that is the context that brought uh, Claudine Gay to the presidency. And she was ably and excellently qualified for that role. She had proven herself um, in previous administrative roles as deans of the, of the, a dean of the largest school on Harvard's campus. So when we put that in context, context, the affirmative action decision last June was the first victory for the conservative uh, right in this country to dismantle the very possibility that people like Claudine Gay would have the qualifications, the Harvard and Stanford degrees necessary to take on such positions. And so within that political context, the attack on affirmative action is one example of what's been going on, uh, which is 30 years old, uh, a, a battle. But additionally, and more proximate to this moment, people like Christopher Rufo in late 2020, in response to George Floyd's killing, have initiated an effort, what we would call a white lash or a backlash, um, forms of misinformation to essentially define a body of knowledge known as critical race theory that is the intellectual um, basis for understanding how systemic and structural racism work as anti-American, as Marxist, as a threat to American civilization. And that led to 24 states criminalizing the teaching of history and all its truth about race, about racism, about sex, about gender. That led to the banning of DEI in places like Florida and to some degree in Texas. And what we saw happen here with this campaign against Claudine Gay, where plagiarism became the pretext, kind of like a black motorist with tinted windows being stopped only uh, to look for drugs so that they could be uh, incarcerated um, as part of a war on black people during mass incarceration. That is the context where Christopher Rufo, who initiated the critical race theory anti-woke campaign, has now culminated in yet another victory uh, with taking down Claudine Gay over a very, very minor offense within academic uh, context. We're talking to Khalil Gibran Mohammed, professor of history, race and um, public uh, and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. I want to turn to an op-ed published in the Harvard Crimson by Bernie Steinberg. He was the executive. Um, he was the executive. Uh, uh, director of Harvard Hillel from 1993 to 2010. It's headlined, For the Safety of Jews and Palestinians, Stop Weaponizing Antisemitism. In his essay, Steinberg supports President Gay. He wrote, quote, During my long career as a Jewish educator and leader, including 13 years living in Jerusalem, I've seen and lived through my community's struggles. Now, as an elder leader with the benefit of hindsight, I feel compelled to speak to what I see as a disturbing trend gripping our campus and many others, the cynical weaponization of anti-Semitism by powerful forces who seek to intimidate and ultimately silence legitimate criticism of Israel and of American policy on Israel. 
In most cases, it takes the form of bullying pro-Palestine organizers. In other cases, these campaigns persecute anyone who simply doesn't show due deference to the bullies. Steinberg continued, quote, the recent effort to smear our new university president, Claudine Gay, is a case in point. I applaud the decision by the Harvard Corporation to stand by Dr. Gay amid the ludicrous charges that she somehow supports genocide against Jews, and I hope Harvard will continue to take a clear and strong stance against any further efforts by these powerful parties to meddle in university affairs, especially over personnel decisions. Uh, now, again, those are the words of Bernie Steinberg, who was the executive director of Harvard Hillel from 1993 to 2010. Of course, this was before uh, the resignation of Claudine Gay, and we can only assume that the Harvard Corporation, the kind of board of overseers of Harvard, um, made a deal with her, um, you know, helped to force her out. So they had first supported her, and now, with tremendous pressure also from billionaire donors, um, she is out. If you can talk about the significance of Harvard Hillel, um, the former head of Harvard Hillel, talking about the weaponization of anti-Semitism as a way to, dis to suppress dissent over what Israel is doing in Gaza right now, Professor Mohammed. Well, I, I think that uh, his comments and his testimony uh, in the op-ed that he wrote from his vantage point speaks uh, very clearly to the absence of a balanced discussion about Claudine Gay's testimony, as uh, was true of the two other presidents, Liz McGill and uh, Kornbluth. Uh, the truth is that they all performed uh, as they should have. They spoke clearly and directly to personally condemning uh, expressions of anti-Semitism, of which Intifada, by definition, is not necessarily, uh, which we could talk about more. Uh, but putting that aside, uh, they were following the instructions of general counsel uh, and likely the board chairs of their various universities. Um, in the case of Claudine Gay, for example, uh, you can see Alan Garber, who is now the current president, the interim president, sitting behind her in glasses and a beard, um, almost mouthing her responses. Um, because as second in charge of the university, they were both prepared uh, to explain the current policies uh, that deal with hate speech and academic freedom. And so what um, Mr. Steinberg is talking about is the context in which that entire uh, hearing was a setup um, where there was no correct answer to a lawful question, a legal question about whether or not certain forms of speech violate the code of conduct. It always depends. And the weaponization of Jews in this case, as he described in his uh, op-ed, suggested to me in watching that hearing for five hours and 40 minutes that people like Virginia Fox had no intention of extending protections to Jews at Harvard or anywhere else. This was a setup to take down DEI and anti-racism and all of the other things that the right has been going after, because that's what she said when she opened the hearing. She described the hearing as a case of people like me teaching classes, which she um, identified in her opening remarks as the real problem as a prime example of anti-racism and critical race theory creating institutional anti-Semitism. That's a lie. It's a form of fascist propaganda. I actually teach about anti-Semitism in that class. And so 
What Mr. Steinberg is describing is exactly what is happening here. Jews have been used as a wedge um, for the right to take down all the entire edifice that has been put in place to deal with structural racism in this society. Do you feel a chill at the Kennedy School? What about other African-American um, professors? Your response to Christopher Rufo, Rufo uh, cheering the resignation of gay, writing the word scalped. Well, listen, <laughs> I mean, you know, speaking of history, in order to even understand that reference, one would have to understand the war against indigenous people, the genocide committed against them, and forms of settler colonialism that birthed this country. Um, this is an evocation of that history in Christopher Rufo, who is who is leading the the charge against uh, people like me, against Claudine Gay, against everyone who works in a university who believes in truth and justice and a future that is better than our past. I mean, it, it's not an accident that in the same Newsweek that that ultimately brings us the resignation of Claudine Gay, Nikki Haley was was on tape being a slavery denier. Um, I mean, this is the the debate we're having in this country about whether you can actually be honest about the country in all of its complexity. No one is saying that is the whole story, that all the terrible things that happened in the past are the only thing that matters. But the truth is that in half the states, let me repeat, you can't teach that. And the way things are going now, you won't be able to teach it at private universities either. I want to talk about teaching and what we understand about history and switch to uh, connected but different subject. Professor Khalil Gibran Mohammed, I want to ask you about the presidential race right now. On the campaign trail last week, Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley made headlines after she did not cite slavery when asked what she believed caused the U.S. Civil War. She was fielding a question from a participant in a town hall meeting in Berlin, New Hampshire. What was the cause of the United States Civil War? Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. What do you think the cause of the Civil War was? I'm sorry? I'm not running for president. I, 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 I wanted to see uh, Europe's a good thing on the cause of the Civil War. I mean, I think it always comes down to the role of government and what the rights of the people are. And we, I will always stand by the fact that I think government was intended to secure the rights and freedoms of the people. It was never meant to be all things to all people. Government doesn't need to tell you how to live your life. They don't need to tell you what you can and can't do. They don't need to be a part of your life. They need to make sure that you have freedom. We need to have capitalism. We need to have economic freedom. We need to make sure that we do all things so that individuals have the liberties so that they can have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to do or be anything they want to be without government getting in the way. Thank you. And in, in the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery. What do you want me to say about slavery? No, um, uh, you've answered my question. Thank you. Next question. So that's Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley. And again, let's remember, she's the former governor of South Carolina. 
facing backlash over a comment. She later said, quote, of course, the Civil War was about slavery. We know that. That's the easy part of it. Professor Khalil Gibran Mohammed, you're a professor of history, race and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime and the Making of Modern Urban America. Um, it was described as a real gaffe on her part that she misspoke. But explain exactly what she was voicing. This was not unusual to hear in a certain sector of U.S. society. It was not a gaffe. Uh, let's be clear about that. Um, Nikki Haley uh, has consistently uh, denied the relevance of the history of racism in this country and the present of racism in this country. Um, Nikki Haley running in a party who is led by a man uh, known for uh, serial discrimination against people of color, uh, as well as harboring actual neo-Nazis, both um, within his larger political um, close circle, uh, but also defending people, as was true in August of 2017 on the campus of the University of Virginia, chanting, Jews will not replace us, and essentially giving them a pass as, as good people. This is uh, the party. This is the Republican Party, the very party that led the witch hunt uh, trial, or should I say hearing, that took place on December 5th. And so when you put it all together, the serial denial of slavery, let's be clear, the serial denial of slavery that is absolutely responsible for how this country came to be an economic juggernaut in the 19th century because of cotton exports, which is not a secret, it is a simple fact that was not just a Southern problem, it was embedded in both Northern institutions, in the financial sector, as well as in the larger uh, European context. So. To deny slavery in 2024, to essentially say, wink, wink, nod, nod, it's not that important, let's move on, is precisely the mirror inver inverse of what Claudine Gay and those other presidents were being accused of, of somehow denying the saliency of anti-Semitism. But that actually isn't true. This is why fascism is such a threat in this moment, because it does not depend on facts. It is only about misinformation and propaganda and catering to people's fears. And in this case, Nikki Haley is is trying to compete for it. Ron DeSantis has already proven himself uh, to have fascist tendencies, if not fascist plans, just like Trump announcing that he plans to be a dictator, at least for the first day he's in office. The, Trump, by the way, was mentioned in the hearing as someone who the questioners asked the presidents if they would be willing to invite to campus to prove their commitment to academic freedom. All of them said yes, of course, but this is the absurdity of the, the, the stakes of what we're talking about. People who actually harbor neo-Nazis, people who actually deny slavery are leading a campaign so that people like me don't get to teach the history of slavery and presidents like Claudine Gay and Liz McGill and others don't get to lead institutions that will be better than they have been for most of their histories. Khalil Gibran Mohammed, I want to thank you for being with us, professor of history, race and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime and the Making of Modern Urban America. When we come back, the United Nations is urging all parties in the Middle East to show restraint after a suspected Israeli drone strike killed a top Hamas official inside Lebanon, raising the risk of a regional war. We'll speak with the Dutch-Palestinian analyst, Muin Rabani. Stay with us.
Stranger in My Homeland by the Lebanese oud player Hassam Hayeks. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Fears of a regional war in the Middle East are growing after a top Hamas official was assassinated in a Beirut, Lebanon suburb Tuesday. Hamas's deputy leader, Salah al-Aruri, was killed in a suspected Israeli drone strike that also killed its believed six other Hamas members. Al-Aruri was the chief of Hamas's operations in the occupied West Bank, also credited with strengthening ties between Hamas and the Lebanese group Hezbollah. While Israel has not claimed responsibility for the assassination, one prominent Israeli lawmaker congratulated the Mossad and Shin Bet on social media. An Israeli army spokesperson said the military is in a, quote, very high state of readiness in all arenas, in defense and offense, unquote. At the United Nations, a spokesperson for the U.N. Secretary General urged nations to show restraint. Because of the escalating tensions and the fragility of the situation in the region, we are calling to, for maximum restraints from all parties. We don't want any, any, rash, any rash actions that could trigger further violence. Lebanon's prime minister, Najib Mekati, condemned the drone strike, warning the attack, quote, aims to draw Lebanon into a new phase of confrontations, unquote. The assassination came a day before the fourth anniversary of the U.S. assassination of the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani, who was killed by a U.S. drone strike inside Iraq under the, the Trump administration, January 3rd, 2020. Earlier today, at least 73 people were killed in a pair of bomb blasts in Iran near Soleimani's tomb during an event marking his death. 173 at least were injured in the blast, which local officials describe as a terrorist act. We're joined right now by Muin Rabani. He is Middle East analyst, co-editor of Judalia, and host of the Connections podcast. He was previously a senior analyst for the International Crisis Group. His latest piece for Mondo Weiss is headlined, The Long History of Zionist Proposals to Ethnically Cleanse the Gaza Strip. We're going to begin with what's happened in Lebanon and the significance of it. Thanks so much for being with us, Muin Rabani. To be with you. So, if you can talk about the assassination of the Hamas leader and what exactly this means, who Al-Aruri is, was? Well, uh, Saleh Al-Aruri was um, a West Bank founder of the military wing of Hamas, uh, the Qassam, uh, the Azadil Qassam Brigades. He spent many years in Israeli prisons and was then um, deported most recently was living in uh, Beirut, in the southern suburbs of Beirut, effectively under Hezbollah protection. He was a key liaison um, between Hamas and um, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and also uh, with the uh, Iranian government. He's said to have been close with um, Yahya Sinwar and Mohammed Dif, respectively, the political and military leaders of Hamas in the Gaza Strip, and the architects of um, the Hamas attacks of October 7th. So I think um, this assassination is significant in two respects. First of all, um, that 
Israel has managed to assassinate the senior leader of Hamas and measured against their failure um, to really achieve anything of military significance in the Gaza Strip over the course of the last three months, um, this can be considered a, a significant um, achievement for them. Although I think its impact on Hamas as an organization, apart from um, a serious blow to their morale, I don't think there will be uh, much consequence. The second and perhaps more important is that Hezbollah has clearly identified any such act by Israel on Lebanese territory, and particularly in the capital, Beirut, as a red line um, to which Hezbollah will respond with a significant escalation. And although um, Hezbollah is known to be very strategic in its um, actions and not to be impulsive in its uh, reactions, I think a response is inevitable. And the question people are asking now is whether it will respond in a way that maintains the kind of controlled escalatory ladder uh, between Hezbollah and Israel, or whether Israel's assassination has now set in motion a process that will lead to full-scale full war, not only between Israel and Lebanon, but, but perhaps also a wider regional conflict. Do you know about the others who were killed in this attack? Well, um, seven people in all um, were assassinated yesterday. In addition to Aruri, there were um, two commanders of the Qassam Brigades, the Hamas military wing, in addition to four other Hamas uh, cadres. It's quite clear that um, Aruri was, was the key um, uh, target. And I think one thing um, that requires explanation from Hamas's side is how these seven people were meeting in a Hamas office in Beirut at a time when it was very clear that Aruri was wanted, uh, not only by Israel, but also by the United States, which approximately a decade ago put a price on his head, and um, why they didn't take greater precautions in terms of operational security um, that allowed Israel to uh, book this achievement. And some are even you know, describing it as a known goal by Hamas at a time when it is denying Israel any significant military achievements in the Gaza Strip. So what does this mean for a wider regional, um, perhaps, war? I mean, you have, I think, privately, the U.S. has been reaching out to leadership in Lebanon. Uh, this then takes place. Not clear what the U.S. knowledge of this was. Um, you have, at the time of this broadcast, Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, has not yet spoken, but he's expected to give a major address. The significance of this attack— um, uh, on the killing of the Hamas, some of the Hamas leadership? Well, I think what many analysts in the region um, are concluding is that Israel clearly would like to see greater uh, regional escalation, and that a key reason it would like to see this escalation is because it knows that it will enjoy um, the support and eventually perhaps the participation of the United States in that escalation. To be clear, um, Washington has indicated to Israel that one of its main priorities is to prevent precisely the kind of regional escalation that we may now be about to witness. But Israel, I think, also understands 
that although it is um, acting in contradiction to U.S. policy preferences, that it can essentially do as it pleases, because apart from a potential verbal slap on the wrist, there will be no consequences from either um, the United States or from uh, key European governments. And so, therefore, it can continue on, on this path. And you mentioned the terrorist attack in Kerman in Iran today, um, near the grave of uh, Qasem Soleimani, uh, the head of uh, the Quds Force, who was assassinated by the United States. And I think, ultimately, I think Israel's ideal situation would be one in which it is able to draw the United States into a direct confrontation with Iran. I don't think it's a likely scenario at this point, but it's one that's becoming increasingly plausible as we see um, intensified genocide, not only in Gaza, but also um, these kinds of greater escalations in Lebanon, in the Red Sea, um, uh, in Yemen, and in Iraq, in Syria, and now potentially elsewhere as well. So I think um, a regional war is very much on the cards. It's by no means um, a certainty, but I do think the confidence Israel has that it can do as it pleases and not suffer any consequences for any of its actions is the key variable here. Moeen Rabani, I want to ask you about your new piece from Amanda Weiss headline, The Long History of Zionist Proposals to Ethnically Cleanse the Gaza Strip. Israeli news outlets report that the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, reportedly told a group of Israeli lawmakers last week, quote, regarding voluntary immigration, this is the direction we're going in, Netanyahu said. Israel's minister of national security, the man who's been convicted of terrorism, uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, has made similar comments. The solution of encouraging the residents of Gaza to emigrate is one that we must advance. It's the right, just, moral and human solution. I call on the Prime Minister and the new Foreign Minister, who I congratulate on his appointment. Now is the time to coordinate an emigration project, a project to encourage the residents of Gaza to emigrate to countries of the world. Let's be clear, we have partners around the world whose help we can use. There are people around the world with whom we can advance this idea. Encouraging their immigration will allow us to bring home the residents of the communities near the Gaza border and the residents of the Gashkatif settlements. Those were the words of Israel's Minister of National Security, Itamar Ben-Gavir. On Tuesday, the U.S. State Department issued a statement rejecting Ben-Gavir's comment, as well as those made by Bezalel Smotrich. Meanwhile, The Times of London reports Israeli officials have held secret talks with the Democratic Republic of the Congo and several other countries to take in Palestinians from Gaza. If you can talk about the history of this, um, Moeen, and also talk about when they refer to voluntary migration in Gaza, and also talk about Egypt and the pressure that's being brought to bear on Egypt to open its borders to the Palestinians of Gaza. 
Yes, and and voluntary emigration is now referencing that article you mentioned being marketed as humanitarian emigration. Um, in other words, we're doing these people a favor by ethnically cleansing them. I think the problem here is that many people associate the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians with the Israeli extreme right, with people like um, uh, Ben Gvir, Smotrich, uh, Netanyahu, and so on. But the point I was seeking um, uh, to make in that uh, article, which is actually um, a lengthy Twitter thread um, that I um, then posted on Mondevice, is is that ethnic cleansing, or what um, Zionists would call transfer, is intrinsic um, to Zionist and later Israeli policy towards the Palestinians from the very outset. So as early as 1895, Theodore Herzl, the founder of the um, uh, contemporary political Zionist movement, wrote that we need to spirit the penniless population across the borders and find employment for it in other lands. If you go to the um, uh, period between the British mandate and the foundation of the State of Israel in 1948, you find that, that the Zionist movement set up a transfer committee um, with very clear terms of reference um, to ensure that refugees who were expelled would not be able to return um, to Palestine to destroy their villages um, and things of that sort. And the Gaza Strip, in fact, with a population that consists for of more than three quarters of Palestinian refugees who were ethnically cleansed in 1948, has since the 1950s been a key target for depopulation by Israel because it doesn't want all these refugees living within sight, so to speak, of their former homes on its borders. And it has produced a number of proposals and initiatives over the years to achieve that goal, including even one in the late 1960s, um, to send over uh, some 60,000 Palestinians from the Gaza Strip to Paraguay, in return for which the Mossad would discover that it no longer had the resources to hunt Nazi fugitives being sheltered by the Stroessner regime. So um, my point was really to demonstrate that this is not a recent policy proposal by the, the extreme fringes of the Israeli political spectrum, but has been intrinsic to mainstream Zionism and later Israeli policy from the very outset. You say at the end of your piece, Moeen Rabani, as importantly, the 1948 Nakba did not defeat the Palestinians who initiated their struggle from the camps of exile, those in the Gaza Strip most prominently among them. It would take a blinkin level of foolishness to assume the expulsion of Palestinians from the Gaza Strip would produce a different outcome. Talk about Netanyahu's goal to de-Hamasify um, uh, Gaza and what exactly that means, and the effect of the killing at this point of over 22,000 Palestinians. Yes, well, that takes me back to the second part of your previous question, which I um, uh, had neglected to answer, which is that at the outset um, of the current war, Israel saw that it had um, uh, unqualified, unconditional Western support from its U.S. and European sponsors and resurrected um, this long-standing ambition to cleanse the Gaza Strip of Palestinians. And 
the proposal that that was put front and center literally on October 7th and onwards was to move the population of the Gaza Strip to um, uh, to the Sinai Desert, to Egypt. And this was an idea that was very enthusiastically embraced by the secretary, U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. And on his first trip to the region, he actually sought to market this to Washington's Arab allies. And I think, you know, um, he is somewhat of a clueless airhead when it comes to the Middle East. And I think he was expecting to hear from U.S. allies, Arab allies, you know, how can we help you help our Israeli friends? And instead, um, he was met with categorical refusal and rejection for this proposal, first and foremost uh, by, by Egypt. And the U.S. and European governments later came out with a position that they would oppose forced displacement from the Gaza Strip, leaving open the possibility of what we're seeing now, an Israeli military campaign, a primary objective of which is to make the Gaza Strip unfit for human habitation, and then the encouragement of voluntary or what is now even being called humanitarian um, uh, emigration uh, in order to achieve uh, the ethnic cleansing. And I think um, the genocide that we're now seeing in the Gaza Strip, and this is something, of course, that's going to be adjudicated by the International Court of Justice in The Hague after South Africa recently um, uh, made an application under the Genocide Convention. You know, all these things put together, making the Gaza Strip unfit for human habitation. Moeen Rabani, we're going to have to leave it there. I thank you so much for being with us. Middle East analyst, co-editor of Jadalia, will link to your piece, The Long History of Zionist Proposals to Ethnically Cleanse the Gaza Strip. Happy belated birthday to Dennis McCormick. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.